seeing my reflection in this tiny computer screen will not be distracting at all um, this entire sermon. How is everybody? Good, yeah. Um, believe it or not, I know. I know. I have not been here in six months, which I was jokingly saying, some of you may not have noticed since the country has been shut down for four of those months, but it has been six months since uh, God called my family over to Mount Olive Baptist Church in, in Knoxville. Um, but I'm super glad to be back here and, and to, to share God's word with you guys tonight. So we are in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 18. And this comes at a very interesting point in, in Luke's gospel. Um, I know you guys have been talking about it for a few weeks now. But things are really starting to heat up in Jesus' ministry. Um, earlier in this chapter, we see two key instances where Jesus is asserting his authority over the Sabbath, right? So you have at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus and the disciples are in the, are in the wheat field. They're picking the chaff. They're eating it. And then after, right after that, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand also on the Sabbath. And what Jesus is doing there is asserting his authority. And he's asserting his authority over the Sabbath. He even ends by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and understandably, this is causing a lot of waves in the religious community there. Uh, in fact, at verse 11, we see um, that the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So things are starting to heat up. And this made me think of a line from a movie, which, if you know me, is not that surprising, because um, I'm always thinking of movie and show lines. Uh, but there's this movie that probably none of you have seen except my wife called Safety Not Guaranteed. And it's this movie about this guy who's a time traveler. He's, he's kind of a dweeb. Uh, but this girl goes to help him on his time traveling adventure. And at first she does it kind of tongue in cheek. But by the end of the movie, they're traveling time together. It's great. But there's this scene where the girl is talking to the dweeby guy. And she says, there's no sense in nonsense, especially when the heat is hot, which it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek line. But here in Jesus' ministry, the heat is starting to get hot, right? There's no sense in nonsense because the heat's getting hot. <laughs> so what does Jesus do, right? Because I think in our culture, um, in a lot of ways, the heat's getting hot for us. Uh, Ash touched on it just now in his prayer, right? We have racial tension all over the place. We have a COVID-19 pandemic. Um that's not even, bef that's before we've even started to reconcile with some of the economic fallout that's going to take shape over the last, from the last few months, over the next few years. We don't even know what that recovery is going to look like yet. There's going to be stuff happening for a while and things are going to be difficult. So what do we do, right? Whenever we're at a crossroads, how do we stand up to that? Uh, I think in general, it's a good idea to look at Jesus and see what he does. What does Jesus do when he's at this crossroads? <laughs> that's my child. In his ministry. So if you're taking notes, which there's so many babies here, I don't think anybody has enough free hands to take notes. But if you are, the, the main point, the, the thesis of tonight's sermon is uh, Jesus calls the 12 apostles to carry out his mission despite all the pressures of the world, and we are to continue that mission today. So that's the main idea. What does Jesus do? He calls us 12 to carry out his mission, and that mission has been passed out to us. But let's not pass over this. Before Jesus calls out the 12, what does he do? He starts with prayer. And I think this is an interesting picture of prayer, right? Because this isn't a 15-minute prayer that Jesus is throwing up on his commute. He's not on his way to, to work, you know, and he's just saying a quick prayer or um, he's not 
taking a shower and deciding to pray while he's standing there. It's more than that. And before we continue down this uh, road of, of talking about Jesus's prayer here and what that means for our prayer life, don't mistake me. As far as people who are bad at prayer life and need to be reformed and change and follow Jesus' examples here better, I'm one of the worst. So don't hear me coming at you from a position of power and perfection. I am just as convicted, if not more convicted, about the shape of my prayer life as any of you are, because it's hard. But we see Jesus model something we need to add here to our prayer life. Uh, Jesus has two things that are significant, right? Jesus isolates himself, and he prays for a really long time. It sounds simple, but it's super important. So let's look at the seclusion, right? Jesus separates himself away, and he goes to the mountain to pray. Um, it makes a point to say that, right, at the beginning of verse 16, or verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. So Jesus intentionally secludes himself which does a few things. One, it makes sure nobody's going to find him, right? It was an intentional decision. He didn't want to be bothered. Jesus was doing a specific thing, and he didn't need people showing up and, and, and messing with the style. But also, he didn't want distractions. Um, he, you know, they didn't have Twitter or Facebook or Instagram then. But if they did, that's part of why Jesus would have gone to the mountain. He went there so he could focus solely on God. He intentionally secluded himself. And that is a spiritual discipline that we probably need to incorporate in, in our lives because this is something Jesus did consistently. The two most famous examples of Jesus secluding himself that I'm sure we can all think of are at the very beginning and the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry. So at the very beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, he spends 40 days in seclusion in the desert fasting. And then as Jesus comes out of the desert, we see Jesus being tempted by Satan. And it's the, you know, it's the story we've all heard before, right? Satan comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, if you turn this this stone into bread, you'll be fed. Hey, Jesus, if you jump off this building, God will catch you. He won't let you fall. Hey, Jesus, if you just bow down to me, then I will give you the world. I'll give you everything, right? And Jesus turns down all of Satan's temptations and then his earthly ministry is off. We're off to the races. So that's the first famous example of seclusion. And a side note about that. I think whenever we hear that story, we think about Jesus being alone in the desert for 40 days, and we assume that Satan was coming at him at a place of vulnerability. We assume that Satan was attacking Jesus, and Jesus was probably vulnerable because he was hungry and tired and in the desert and was willing to do anything. I would argue that Jesus was actually the strongest he's ever been coming out of that 40 days in the desert. Why couldn't Jesus be tempted by food? Or water? And why could he say man doesn't live off bread alone? Because for the last 40 days, Jesus has not been living off bread. How can he be confident in God's providence and not feel the need to, to test God? Because for the last 40 days, he has been living inside God's providence, right? How can he trust that he doesn't need to pursue his own glory? Because for the last 40 days, he's been in the desert proclaiming God's glory. So I would argue that Jesus, coming out of the desert after 40 days, made him stronger and more able to stand up to the temptations of Satan rather than weaker because seclusion and secluding ourselves with God is important. The, the second famous example, right, is Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. 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 Nope. You know. Uh, Jesus at the Garden, right? And this is... 
prior to Jesus's crucifixion. So we, we see this, this cool picture of at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, it is marked with an extended period of seclusion. At the end of Jesus's ministry, it's marked with an intense period of prayer and seclusion. But there's also chapters and periods of times Jesus secluding himself throughout his entire earthly ministry. This was a practice Jesus regularly did. So the question is why, right? Why does Jesus think solitude is so important? Um, I would argue it's because it's a spiritual discipline we should implement today, just like we would implement reading our Bibles or praying. Um, A spiritual discipline is just a fancy word to say stuff we should do as Christians to make us more like Jesus. Um, Obviously, an example is reading our Bibles, right? Uh, Serving is a spiritual discipline. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. Serving is a spiritual discipline. Tithing is a spiritual discipline. And I would argue solitude and seclusion should be a spiritual discipline. And there's a lot of great books and a lot of great resources that goes into these spiritual disciplines. And I'm actually currently reading one right now. It's called Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. And Mike Cosper is a pastor in Louisville who, um, as Ash would say, is my ministry crush. Uh, I like Mike Cosper. He's, he's a cool guy. And so he's written this book about spiritual discipline. And he talks about this idea of solitude in his book, and specifically solitude in Jesus' life. Because the question would be, why does Jesus go into solitude? Why is it important? And Mike Cosper argues, and I would argue, it's because it's because to rest from spiritual weariness. Part of being human is we all get weary and we all get hungry, right? And when you're hungry, what are you going to do? Like, what's the proper response to being hungry? You're going to eat, right? If you starve yourself to death... That's not because you're strong. It's because you're dumb and you did not make the proper response to being hungry. Or what about if you're sleepy? What's the proper response? Going to sleep, right? Um, You're not stronger or better for denying sleep forever. You're foolish. A proper response to sleepiness is sleep. So what about Jesus and withdrawing to the desert? What does that mean? It means Jesus was spiritually weary, just like we all get spiritually weary. So does that mean Jesus lacked perfection? And this is what Mike Cosper says. He, Jesus, is perfect. Not because he never tires of the crowd and the work of ministry, but because he rightly responds to weariness, withdrawing to desolate places to rest and pray. So why does Jesus separate himself in solitude consistently throughout his ministry? It's because ministering to that many people is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting. And in our culture... We care about physical and emotional exhaustion, but do we care about spiritual exhaustion? Are we putting in the work to recharge spiritually from spiritual weariness? And so I would argue that we need to follow Jesus' example. And whenever we encounter spiritual weariness, we need to have a discipline of finding times of solitude with God, a time away from distractions, away from things that can pull us away, of recharging our spiritual batteries just like Jesus does here. So that's the first thing we notice about Jesus' prayer, right? He goes to a mountain. He secludes himself. It's a time of solitude. The second thing is that Jesus also prays for a long time. Um, and let's not jump past this point because this is another one I'm also bad at, uh, is that Jesus doesn't pray for five minutes and goes, cool, i gotta got to hop in the shower and get ready for work. He prays all night. He prays nonstop. We would assume for a period from six to eight hours before making this decision of the 12 apostles, right? 
And so there, there's, there's a wisdom in spending a long time in prayer. I think it's something that we try and talk ourselves out of being necessary or important, but it still is. Uh, we live in a busy culture. We are busy all the time. Even if we're not busy, per se, like even if we don't have kids or if we don't have multiple jobs or school or whatever, our minds are still busy. We live in a culture that does not believe in stillness, right? So even, you know, when most of us go to the bathroom, you bring your phone and scroll Facebook the whole time. Every There is no margin in our lives. We're always occupying our minds. And prayer is the opposite of that, right? Prayer is stillness. Taking time to pray for a long period of time is so counter how our culture has wired us because we've been wired to always be busy, to always be filling our minds with with anything. Uh, but God calls us to stillness, to extended periods of stillness and quietness with God. So some of us may say, Tanner, I don't have time for that. And I get that. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but none of my family is currently in this room right now because, oh no, Emmett is. No, it's, it's one of them. Okay, Emmett is. The rest of my family is not currently in this room because the 18-month-old tried to bum-rush the stage while I am preaching to you right now. So as you can imagine, there is not a lot of inherent stillness in the Millican household. Um, I get it. And a lot of us are in that boat. However, we still carve out time for stuff that's important to us, right? I promise you, for 12 Saturdays in October, I'm going to find three and a half hours of stillness, right? When it comes football time, assuming that happens. Um, and we all have our stuff, whether it's it's music or reading or working out or something. If it's important to us, we're going to carve out time. We're going to make sure it happens if it's important to us. So the question is, why isn't prayer in that category? Why isn't prayer in the category of something that we are going to carve out time for no matter what it takes, no matter how hard it is? Because um, I would argue it should be, right? And we have examples all through scripture and all throughout church history that show the importance and the power of prayer. Uh, quickly, one one famous one is a man named George Mueller, right? I had to read a biography about George Mueller for my spiritual disciplines class. And honestly, it's amazing what God did in this man's life. He lived in England from 1805 to 1898. And he started with just a small orphanage where he took care of just a few kids in England. And his mission statement was that he was never going to ask anyone for anything. He wasn't even going to tell people what he needed, even. He was going to go out of his way to be vague and, and opaque about what he lacked. And he would just spend hours in prayer every day. And the reason he did this was that so no man could look at his orphanage and say it was because he was such a good fundraiser or such a persuasive speaker. But so that every man who looked at Mueller's orphanage would know that it had to unequivocally be the blessing of God. That was his mission statement. And he would wake up hours earlier than everyone else and pray. And even as the orphanage grew and his responsibility level grew, at one point, it was a, during his life, it was a sprawling campus responsible for hundreds and hundreds of orphans and staff members. He still took hours and hours every single day to pray because he saw it as absolutely essential, the absolute lifeblood of the ministry God was doing. Uh, we can learn from that example, right? I promise George Mueller has more responsibility or had more responsibility than any of us in this room. And he still saw prayer as the lifeblood of what God was doing. 
and he made sure to do it. Um, but even simpler than that, I'm going to make it even simpler than, than looking at George Mueller. Let's look at Jesus, right? Um, Jesus thought it was crucial to pray for a long time consistently. Um, anytime, basically before or after Jesus does almost anything big in the Gospels, you see him step away and pray for a long time. It was something he consistently did. So not to, not to Jesus juke us and throw the gill on us because I'm, I'm in this camp too. What are we saying then if Jesus decided that his time was worth devoting to prayer, but we can't decide our time is worth devoting to consistent prayer? We're saying we think our time is more important than Jesus's. And none of us would say that, but that's functionally what we're saying when Jesus says, Hey, this is a priority. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I gotta watch Netflix, Jesus. Uh, that's what we're saying, right? And it's absurd when you look at it that way, but that's what we're doing. So we see Jesus at this pivotal point in his mission um, do something crazy, right? He slows down, the opposite of what our culture says he should do. But he slows down. He steps away uh, before making this big decision, and he prays for a long time. Two things that. I don't know about you, but I'm really bad at it. And I feel like it's very counter our culture, just taking time to intentionally be still. But Jesus gets up, right? When he's done praying, he goes and he does something. What does he do? He, he calls the 12 apostles that these men are going to be the foundation of the church. So let's, let's look at these 12 men and, and see what we can learn from looking at them. So going back to the text here, Luke names who the 12 men are, right? Uh, and I'm not going to go through the list right now, but some of them are probably names that we read and we're like, cool, I know who that guy did and I kind of know some stuff he did. And some of them, you may be thinking to yourself, I've never heard that name before and I never hear it again in the Bible. And you would be correct. Um, because the interesting thing about the apostles is some of them, this is the only place they pop up, right? They're, they're gifted to do different things and their ministry looks different. But I think something else interesting here, before we even get to the names, is if you would look at verse 13, the way that the ESV puts it. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So one thing that, that I really noticed, that I guess I never really thought about before I was studying for the sermon, is that Jesus seems to be, or Jesus is, choosing his, his apostles out of a broader pool of disciples. So there seems to be a larger group than 12 that out of that group, Jesus is pairing down to the 12. Uh, So what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Apostle literally means called out ones. And so when we look at the parallel account of this calling over in Mark, Jesus isolates three things that he's calling out the apostles from the broader pool of disciples to do. One is to be with him. Right, these 12 apostles are to always be with Jesus and always following them around. Two, Jesus says in Mark that they're sent out to preach. And three, they have the authority to cast out demons. And later we know that 11 of these 12 men, one of them doesn't quite work out, 11 of these 12 men would establish the church and establish Jesus' teachings in the early church. So what about everyone else? What if, you know, there's... 20 people hanging out, and you're not one of the 12 that's chosen. Does that mean you're off the hook? Does that mean you can just go back to the house and do whatever you want and that you don't have to serve Jesus anymore? No, actually. 
um, there were still part of the mission of the church. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, which I assume you guys will get there eventually, Jesus commissions 72 people to go out in groups of two. So you would assume that this is these 72 people come from that larger group that Jesus called the 12 out of. So we still see that these broader group of disciples are engaged, even if they're not in the 12. Um, another interesting picture you see of, of evangelism happening outside of the 12 that Jesus commissions here is in Acts chapter 18. Uh, they're ministering to a group that heard of John's baptism, but not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would be evidence that they heard from an apostle or a disciple of John rather than one of Jesus's 12s. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see examples of evangelism from people that are not in this group of 12. So I think it's interesting to note before we really dig too deep into the 12 here, that there were people that were following Jesus that were not one of the 12 apostles. Yet they still carried out the mission of the church. Their job was just not to be an apostle. And that's okay. And even within the apostles, some of them we never hear of again, right? Their name just shows up here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the list. And that's it, right? We don't hear about stuff they did in Acts. We don't have their letters. Um, church history would probably tell us how they died. But that's about it. That's all we know about them. But they still served the mission that God gave them, right? So what does that mean for us? Um, what, not all of us are going to be called to do everything. Uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I can't sing at all. It's really bad. Um, I am not called to lead you in worship. But just because I'm not called to lead you in worship, it doesn't mean I'm not part of the mission of the church. It doesn't mean I'm not called to do something. Some of you aren't called to be up here and teaching. That's great. This would be the most boring church in the world if all of you wanted to be preachers because that's not everyone's gifting. Uh, so I think we can look at the apostles and look at the fact that 12 were chosen. Hey, buddy, what's up? Okay, we can look at the apostles and how 12 were chosen out of the broader pool of disciples. <laughs> Callie, Facebook. People who are watching, my three-year-old just sprinted up to the stage and stared at me and then walked away. That's what just happened. Um, God, I don't even know where I was, honestly. Um, yeah. So anyways, the point is to carry out the mission of God. Here we are. That's where we are. The point is to carry out the mission of God. The point isn't you and what you want to do and, and your fame. The point is to carry out the mission of God, Right? So that is broadly what we see from the calling of the 12, is that some were part of the 12, some weren't, some did a bunch of cool stuff, and some just preached the gospel and died. But they all were part of carrying out the mission of God. So but what can we learn specifically by looking at them? Just, there was just a few interesting things that, that jumped out to me that I think are really cool to see that, that apply to the church today. Um, so let's look at the first four names on the list. We have Simon Peter. Andrew, James, and John. So these are the four fishermen, right? We see uh, them being called as disciples, which is different than when they were called as apostles. We see them being called as disciples, some version of it in every gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, we see it. Um, so that is where they are fishing all night. They don't catch anything. And Jesus says, throw your nets over. And they pull in the nets and, and the boats overflowing. Um, in the Gospel of John, we see that, that at least some of these four men were associated with John the Baptist. 
So they were already involved in John the Baptist ministry, and then Jesus calls them over to his ministry. Uh, but the point is, what we know for sure is that these were four blue-collar dudes. They did not have the pedigree to go on and be a megachurch pastor or whatever. Like th- That wasn't who they were. Um, they just wanted to fish, go home and sleep, and then wake up at night and do it again. And that was their whole life, and that was going to be their whole life. That was their daddy's whole life. But Jesus calls them, right? Jesus calls them. And then what do we know about these four apostles? Out of the 12, these four are probably the most active in the rest of the New Testament. Um, obviously, John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote Revelation. Um, Peter is all over the Gospels, and he's all over Acts. And he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Peter. Uh, and then we also see you know, Andrew and James pop up here and there. But these four men who came from the least prestigious background became the most active apostles that we see in the rest of the New Testament. So we see Jesus calling someone and then elevating them to a position to where it could only be God working in their life. And that's something we see God do today, right? He takes people and he elevates them to a position and, and changes them in a way that you know it's the moving of God. So I think that's one cool thing we see out of the, the calling of the 12. Um, another thing that I think is is especially relevant today is two names on this list that I want us to take note on. One is Matthew and the other is Simon the Zealot. So what do we know about Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. What do we know about Simon? He was a zealot. You may be thinking, that's cool. That sounds fun. What is a zealot? Let me tell you. So in this time period, Israel was occupied by the Romans. And generally speaking, Israel was not cool with being occupied by the Romans. They did not enjoy it. And there's varying degrees of disliking um, how much you would that you dislike the Romans. And the far left was the Zealots. Um, the Zealots was a political group that wanted to overthrow the Romans by any means necessary. In fact, some historians say that the Zealots would walk around with a dagger in their cloak because you never know when you might have a chance to get a good stabbing of a Roman. So you always got to be ready, right? So Simon was that extreme that he literally would be walking around with a dagger in his cloak, looking for a chance just to stab a Roman official if, if he got a chance. So that's Simon. What about Matthew? What's his deal? Well, where Simon saw oppression and saw a government to be overthrown, Matthew saw dollar signs. Matthew was a tax collector. What does that mean? That meant he worked for the Roman government, but he didn't just work for the Roman government. He worked for the Roman government to rip off his own countrymen. So the way being a tax collector would work is let's say I go to the emperor and I say, hey, I want to be a tax collector. And he's like, cool, you have the city of Maribel. I expect $1 million. Cool. So then I go to Ash and let's say his fair share would be $25,000. And I'm like, Ash, talk to the emperor. You owe him $50,000. And if Ash says, that's not true, then I just send the Roman guards on him and say, this man doesn't want to pay his taxes. And then if Ash does actually pay me the taxes, then I just made $30,000. And that's what tax collectors did. They would do this to everyone, rip off and defraud their own people to make themselves wealthy. They also really liked the Romans because they made them rich. So you have this man, Simon, who hated the Romans so much he would kill for it, And you have this other man, Matthew, who is so loyal to the Romans, he is ripping off his own people in order to make himself rich. So what happens? 
What happens when God calls them? You know the amazing thing? It's not even mentioned. Nothing happens. So what does that mean? That means that it didn't matter anymore, right? Normally, these two men would literally want to kill each other. But when they're both called to be apostles, when they're both called to follow Jesus, none of that stuff matters anymore. Uh, I, it, it makes, just to put it in context, uh, I thought of this jokingly, but it, it'd almost be like if you went to the farmer's market and saw Jared and Bernie Sanders hanging out. Like, it makes that look tame. These two men hated each other, but they came together for the sake of Christ. Just let that visual sink in. You know, you walk to the farmer's market. Hey, Jared. Bernie Sanders? That'd be fun. Um, so why, though? Why? Why are Matthew and Simon able to serve alongside each other? Uh, because they're captivated by Christ and by his mission. And I think this is an important thing to notice also, a, a caveat. Matthew and Simon weren't able to experience unity, and it wasn't a superficial unity that only existed for the sake of unity. It was a unity with a direction, right? It was a unity that was going somewhere. It was a unity that was centered on Christ. So what I'm not saying is if someone disagrees with you, you should not hold to your convictions so that we can all be friends. What I am saying is if you are united in Christ with someone— and you are both serving Christ's missions, then there's probably a lot more stuff that we're inherently comfortable with that you can lick up. And so I, what I would just, as a side point of this, because, man, there's a lot of hot-button issues in our culture today. There's a lot of um, modern things we could juxtapose between Matthew and Simon and, and say, oh, it's just like this and just like this. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I would just encourage you that whenever you feel... Um, a desire to disassociate yourself with someone or, or clap back at someone for an opinion you disagree with or something you disagree with, it could be justified. It could be worth it. There are things in this world that are worth breaking unity over. But just wait a minute. Just make sure. Spend some of that secluded time in prayer we talked about earlier and see if this is actually a gospel thing to break fellowship over or if you need to be like Matthew and Simon and it needs to just fade to the back for the glory of God. So those are just a few things I, I saw about the 12 here. We could go into, you know, some of the other other stuff, but I kind of want to move on to the next point because I, I, I think it's really cool what Jesus does next here. So he calls the 12, right? And, and it gives us a great picture of a Christian community. We see Jesus taking people, that are unqualified and, and elevating them to a role that can only be the movement of the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus making bridges and uniting people that the world would say should never be united. But it was a direction, right? What do they do? They immediately get to work. Let's look at verses 17 through 19 here. They, they don't waste any time, right? These men have a job to do. They're not called just to hang out and talk about stuff. They're called to go out and spread the gospel. And they do. Um, it, it makes a point to tell us that there's people there from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. So there's people from all over. So you have Judea, which is in the south, Jerusalem in the north, and Tyre and Sidon are over on the east coast. So they are doing something, right? They're, speak, they're preaching the gospel. They're healing people. And that message is going to travel because these people are going to go back home and say what they've seen. But we also, when we look at the parallel account of, of the calling of the Twelve in Matthew, 
we also immediately see Jesus commission them. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, 7 through 8 says, uh, Go out and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. So Jesus calls the twelve, and he immediately preaches to a large, diverse crowd and commissions the twelve to go out and do the same. Um, so Jesus' calling has a direction. So to wrap things up, I, I want to conclude with this. Uh, this should be an obvious point. just want to throw it out there. We're not apostles. If someone claims to be an apostle, you should run away from that person. Uh, but we do have a lot in common with them. Like the apostles, we too have a commission, right? Um, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That commands for us today. Right, We are to be going out and making disciples of all nations. We're also like the apostles in the sense that we are called to do certain things to make that mission happen. Uh, we are together one big body. Not everyone is to be a knee. Not everyone's to be a mouth. Right? Someone's got to be the elbow. I don't know what that, what that translates to, but that, there you go. Some of us are called to be in the background like Bartholomew or, or Judas the good one. And some of us are maybe called to be more visible, like Peter or John. Uh, whatever our calling is, we're to do it faithfully. And, and we're not going to be equipped to fulfill that calling or to even know what that calling is if we're not taking the time in prayer. So I would encourage you this week to take that time in prayer, right? To find pockets, create pockets of time to have isolated prayer to God and, and see God, seeing what is your mission for the church? What is your role for the mission for the church as a whole, which is to tell the world about Jesus? And specifically, what is your role for the mission of Pleasant Grove at College Street? Um, which is a weird thing for me to say because God called me away from here, but God has called all of you people to be here right now. So what does that look like for you? What is your role to do that right now? And I, I would encourage you just to take that time to pray to see what your calling is, to see what God is calling you to do to serve this church and to serve your community. And then go and, and don't waste time, right? Because the apostles didn't waste time. Go and do it with a courage that can only come as a result from the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and Cheetah's going to come up and, and do a closing hymn. Dear God, um, thank you for this day, God. Thank you for your word. And, and um, God, just help us as, as we go through our week to to take time to just pray, God, and, and to spend time alone with you and to get away from distractions. Uh, most of us in the room are in a time period where getting away from distractions is hard and it takes an intentional effort. But God, help us to take that effort. And as we take that effort, help us to seek your face, to seek what you'd have us do. Then help us go do it, God. Um, after Jesus called the 12 there, they hit the ground running and help us to move with that same urgency. So your name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. <clears throat> By faith we see.
nations reside in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness. By faith and not by sight. Our fathers Thanks, Tanner. Um, great job. Appreciate it. Um, and, and you know what? I think that uh, is, uh, I know it was uh, 
there were lots of distractions tonight, right? Like we have, there's, there's lots of moving parts going on right now. Um, but I hope you're listening, um, because I think that is, is definitely a place that our church is at where, uh, we, we are, we need people to step up into places of service and into places of leadership, um, and, and do what God has called you to do, right? Um, and obviously we can't necessarily tell you what you're, you're called to do. Um, we can tell you maybe if you're qualified or if you're the best person for it in some ways, but we can't tell you what you're called to do. Um, you've got to talk to God about that. And, and for one, that involves a lot of prayer. Okay. And so, um, I encourage you to do that. Be in prayer for not only how you can be a part of things and serve and, and, and be a part of, of different things in the church, but also continue to pray um, for the, the larger leadership of the church. Okay. Continue to pray for me as, as we, um, continue to, to serve and minister together, continue to be about, you know, it's been a few months since we've talked about it, but continue to pray about that process of elders. If you think about it, that's kind of what Jesus is doing in this passage, right? Like he is picking out his, and I know they're not elders cause it's not exactly the same situation, right? But he's picking out his, his, his elders. Um, and, and, he starts that off with this dedicated time of prayer so that, that they'll know what's best um, and, and, and do the right thing according to God's word and will. And so we need to be those same kind of people. So I hope you'll take those things to heart um, and uh, continue to, to remember those things and be in prayer for them. Good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Um, good to have Tanner and Jamie back just for, for tonight um, and um, continue to pray for them as, as they are serving um, at a sister church. And so, uh, here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.